Welcome all of you. Happy New Year, a little early. Now you see, now you all have no idea what to say. Happy, uh, yeah, there's no liturgical response for that. Happy New Year to you too. That might work well. Those of you joining us online, we're glad you're worshiping with us and Happy New Year to you as well. Um, today is an important day for us. Not only is it the end of 2013, we get ready to turn to a new year. Um, there's a couple of things I just wanted to lift up very quickly today. Andrew Chandra. Where are you, Andrew? Wave your hand madly for me. He's over there. Andrew, who you saw up here playing cello, who plays keyboard in the bands, jack of all trades and master of all, I would say. Uh, he is getting ready to start a, what do we call it, internship or residency? Internship that's going to take him away from us for about six months. And so we're all going to grieve for a moment that Andrew will not be here with us. He's been such a stalwart of being a part of the music ministry of this church, playing cello, keyboards, so many other things. He is almost irreplaceable, almost. And so for that, we give thanks. So Andrew, we're thankful for you and uh, pray blessings on you. We look forward to seeing you again up here with us again. So let's thank Andrew for his tireless work for us. Amen. Hopefully you get a chance to greet him afterwards and uh, thank him for all the wonderful ways he shared in the music ministry of this congregation. Well, today's my last Sunday preaching for a few weeks. I'll be gone on medical leave. I have my surgery Friday morning. They actually tried to reschedule it on Friday for a week later. <laughs> and I said, do I have a choice? And so they said, yeah, you do. And so I decided to keep it on Friday. So I'll be having surgery Friday. So as of Thursday at noon... Your interim lead pastor is Camille Pook, right here. And so pray for Pastor Camille, and she's going to be holding down all the responsibilities of functioning as the lead pastor of this church for six weeks, in addition to all the other work that she does. So you pray for me, that's a no-brainer. No pun intended, because I'm having brain surgery. <laughs> but we want to pray for Pastor Camille as she leads this congregation together with our leadership team. They've done such a fabulous job of preparing for this time when I'm going to be away. I had my preoperative appointment about a, oh, a little over a week ago, and uh, they say now I'll get out of the hospital the, the next day, hopefully. So I'll have the surgery Friday, come home on Saturday. And then uh, the first couple weeks are kind of the main recovery time, and then after that I'll feel like myself uh, again to some degree. I'll be able to do some work at home. I'll be just doing some reading and writing. I'm not really going to be doing any administrative work, but just kind of doing some preparation for the Lenten sermon series that's going to start in February when I come back on February 18. So I'll be doing some things at home, just working. Uh, and if anything comes up in the life of the church, don't ask me. Ask Pastor Camille. She has all the answers, right? <laughs> She's like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> The surgery is pretty simple. Um, it takes about a 90 minutes to do the entire procedure on Friday morning. So uh, I'll be back hopefully in a regular hospital room by the afternoon and feeling better. They say the recovery is like having a sinus infection for a few days and then you gradually start getting better. So that's what I'm anticipating. It's brain surgery, everyone. So I'm a little nervous, as you can imagine. And so your prayers for peace and grace and for healing are very much appreciated. We're concluding our series today on the extraordinary life, and we've been looking at the 
people in the Christmas story and how God used very ordinary people in that story to do some extraordinary things. And by looking at their stories, we can begin to find some biblical keys for our own lives about how God could work in us in extraordinary ways. Now, extraordinary doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be world-renowned. It might just simply be extraordinary to you, extraordinary to your family members or the people around you. But I believe that God wants to work in an extraordinary way in all of our lives. And so it's simply a matter of saying, how do we position ourselves? How do we place ourselves before God so that those extraordinary moments can happen? So we started way back about a month ago talking about the story of Joseph, who we're talking about today. Joseph was troubled about whether he should take Mary as his wife because she turned up pregnant in the midst of their uh, engagement together. And the angel spoke to him and told him through some uncommon sense that he should take Mary as his wife. And so the first step in the extraordinary life is discernment. Discernment. The willingness to sit before God in prayer, in scripture, in nature, anywhere. And to say, God, I'm open to the word you have for me. Speak. I'm listening. Then we turned our attention the week after that to Mary and Elizabeth. Mary, of course, the mother of Jesus. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Both of them pregnant at the time, meeting together. And talked about how we learned in the Magnificat, the great song of Mary, what it meant for them to surrender their lives to God. To place before God their power, their own kind of uh, social position, all those things. To be able to say, God, I've heard your call and I take everything that I have, all that I am, and I lay it at your feet. And then last week on Christmas Eve, we focused on the story of the shepherds and how the shepherds had this great announcement opened up to them and the heavens were opened. And when they saw that vision, when the angels spoke, they accepted what the angels said and went and told Mary and Joseph everything that had happened to them. So those are the three steps so far. Step number one, discernment. Step number two, surrender. Step number three, acceptance. But there's one step left to go. And it's the hardest step of all. And this step is the last step in the process, but it's also the first step. And the first step is sometimes the hardest one to take, and it's the step of obedience. Obedience. Obedience is hard in this story for Joseph as the angel comes and speaks to him a second time. Now, Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew is going to be spoken to by an angel three different times. The first time when he was told to take Mary as his wife. The second time is this episode when he's told to take the child, Jesus, and his mother and go to Egypt. And the third time is when the angel appears to him in Egypt and tells him to go home to Nazareth. Obedience is a difficult step here because Joseph knows Nazareth because that's where he's from. He knows Bethlehem because it's his ancestral home. But then go to Egypt, another country, with nothing but the clothes on their back. Can you imagine with a newborn? This is the story we see replete every single day today, isn't it? We call these people a refugee who are fleeing from one land to another 
in order to save themselves from a persecution or oppression that they're going to experience. This step is the hardest step. Joseph being called to go to a place he doesn't know, he has no relationships there, and he's got to find a way with the child, as Matthew calls Jesus, and Mary. Now the obstacle here in this story is pretty clear. We're going to show you a picture of him right here. This is King Herod the Great. Now he's called Herod the Great because out of all the kings that reigned in the Herodian dynasty, he's the most well-known. He also reigned the longest. How many of you have been to the Holy Land before? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you have. So if you've been to the Holy Land, undoubtedly your tour took you to all the different great buildings that Herod the Great constructed. They probably took you to Caesarea Maritima. They probably took you to Herodias. The most famous building that Herod the Great built was the Jewish temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Romans 40 years after he finished it. He is also the person who was responsible for the construction of the desert fortress Masada. And so Herod the Great is known for all the great buildings he built. What Herod the Great is also lesser known for is what a great despot and dictator he was. He was a sinister and evil man. Over his life, thousands of people died at his hands, including the murder of his own wife, including the murder of his two eldest children, because he thought them to be usurpers to his throne. Herod the Great was just a puppet king under the Roman Empire, so it's not like he was a king on his own. He reigned under the Romans, but he was ruthless. We know from the story that once the Magi do not return to him as he told them to, that he was tricked by them. The Magi had brought their gifts to Jesus. How many Magi were there, everyone? Excellent. We don't know. What we do know is they brought three gifts. So well, next week when you probably, are you singing We Three Kings next week? I'm looking at Scott. Oh, Scott says no. Okay. There weren't three of them. We don't know. Could have been three. They brought three gifts, though. We know that. They came, brought their gifts to Jesus, and instead of going back to Jerusalem, which is a mere six miles down the road, to tell Herod where they had been, they simply snuck off and went home. So Herod hears about this, he's irate. So when you read that in the story in Matthew, when it says Herod is irate, it says, like, well, what's new? Herod's always irate about something. He then sends his soldiers to kill every male-born child in the city of Bethlehem under the age of two. Why under the age of two? Well, we talked about this a little bit in the podcast this week, if you had a chance to listen to it. The amount of time it took the Magi to get from where they lived all the way to Jerusalem, then Bethlehem. Jesus was not a newborn infant by the time they arrived. He could have been as old as two. So Herod wants to ensure that all the male children in Bethlehem under the age of two are killed. We know demographically that's probably about 20 children that Herod had killed. It's a tragedy. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. This is the obstacle. That's an old icon showing the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. There's Herod up in his tower giving directions to everyone. Can you imagine for a moment what it's like to be Joseph? Just put yourself in the story for a minute. What's it like to be the the father to this child that you don't actually understand, nor are you the actual biological father of. You've witnessed all these miraculous acts. It's overwhelming. 
could be a bit confusing. And yet an angel speaks, says, Joseph, I want you to pick up your family, and you're already living in a city that's not your home, and I want you to go farther away from your home, the exact opposite direction. If they were going to go home to Nazareth, they would have gone north. The angel tells them to go south to Egypt, and there they're to stay until Herod the Great dies. Just imagine what it's like to be that family. What it's like in that moment to be Joseph. Herod is clearly the obstacle, but in our own moment, in our own time, after we've set with God in discernment, after we've surrendered to the Lord all that we have and all that we are, after we've accepted the fact that God is speaking and moving and giving us a sense of direction, then comes that moment of obedience. But it's the moment of obedience where we face the obstacles. You see, we don't really process the obstacles until we get to the moment of action. Now, a lot of times, we'll do a lot of analysis about the obstacles that we face, and that keeps us from taking action. But that's the pivot point for us, when we're going to act on what God has said or not act on what God has said. And so we analyze all of the obstacles around us. And there's lots of them in our lives. There's reputation and image. I mean, what would happen if God were to call you to do something completely crazy? What would your family members think about it? Perhaps you announced this at your Christmas dining table. What would they think? Sometimes the obstacle is about power, either getting it or not having it. Sometimes it's institutions. Our finances become an obstacle. We just can't possibly afford that. Or time. I don't have time for that. Those are the outward obstacles. But what are the inward ones? Our own ego. Our own doubts. Doubts either about the outcome God has called us to or maybe about the doubts we hold about ourselves. The sense in which we may not be the people that we wish we were. We're not sure we can do that which God has called us to do. What about fear? Or more importantly, the fear of failure. What if I went ahead and did the thing that I think God is calling me to do? What would happen? You know, over the years, this church has had a lot of people in it that have come through this congregation and have gone into the mission field. Phyllis Sorter is a good example. We're going to have here in uh, February, uh, Haney and his wife from the Middle East, they're going to be here. These are people who were part of our congregation that went off to the mission field. What do you think happened to them? They had to discern. They had to surrender. They had to accept. And then eventually what? They had to leave. They had to take action and go. And so we might say to ourselves, well, that, that sounds like any missionary, right? They're supposed to have those kinds of experiences. Newsflash. All of us are missionaries. Every one of us is called by God to be in ministry somewhere, somehow, in some way. Now, and oftentimes when we talk about that, we, we run for cover from that call because we then would say, well, my, my family is ministry and taking care of my children or taking care of my parents, those are ministries. Friends, they are your ministry. There's no doubt. 
But let's also be honest enough to realize that that may not be the only ministry God has called you to do. Let's be wise enough to understand that having a ministry that somehow resembles 21st century American culture and life may not always be the thing God has called us to do. Maybe there's something else, something more. So how do we face these obstacles? How do we come to that moment of decision and shift? And there's lots of good patterns for this. There's one of them that's even civil. It's not even religious. You might remember just a couple of weeks ago, December 16th was the 250th anniversary of this. That is the Boston Tea Party. This is the first kind of open public action against British rule by the 13 colonies that eventually snowballed into the American Revolution. Somebody one day had to decide that we're going to go board these British ships and we're going to toss some tea overboard. Somebody had to do that. It was in protest to taxation by the British government. Let's step away from American history just for a minute. Here's a picture of Polycarp. Polycarp, as you can see, he has a problem. He's being lit on fire. And the reason is that St. Polycarp is the first chronicled Christian martyr that we have outside of the Bible. He was burned at the stake by the Roman Caesar on February 23rd, 155. 155. Polycarp had to make a decision at some point, didn't he? He had to discern, he had to surrender, and then eventually he had to uh, you know, accept the mission God had given him, and then at some point he had to take action, and his action was, was to defy the Roman emperor. We could talk about Joan of Arc, who's one of the patron saints of France, who was killed by the British on May 30th, 1431. Same thing. We could talk about the act of courage taken by Martin Luther when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany on October 31st, 1517. There's a lot of good history here. It's important on December 31st for us to remember our history because it tells us about the future. Now Martin Luther King, Martin Luther defied an entire religious operation called the Roman Catholic Church and started the Protestant Reformation, of which we are a result sitting here today. Or, perhaps a more contemporary example, March 7, 1965, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge. A seminal moment in the Civil Rights Movement. You see, these are all individuals, at least as far as we know from our own history, that had a moment of discernment in their lives, came to a place of surrender to God. They accepted the word God gave them, and the ministry God gave them, and they obeyed. They made the choice to do the very thing God called them to do. Now, I realized after I put this list together that it, for almost in all of these cases, it ends in their murder. So not a particularly inspiring message to all of you Christians. Go out there and get martyred. Not the message. But the pattern we see in these lives is the same pattern as we see in Joseph's life. Here's Joseph and Mary on their way to Egypt. It's the same pattern. It says in the story in Matthew that as soon as the angel spoke, Joseph immediately, in the middle of the night, took the child and his mother and went to Egypt. He didn't even wait until the morning. 
he left that night. That's the kind of obedience he had. He didn't hear the message and say, well, I'm going to sit with this for a couple of years and decide what I want to do. He heard and he acted in an instant because he was convinced this is exactly what God had told him to do. What is Joseph's ministry, everyone? To protect the child and his mother. That's his ministry. Now, Herod the Great wasn't successful in killing Jesus. But his great-nephew was. 30 years later. You see, the question of Jesus dying isn't the question on the table. It's when Jesus dies, and for what purpose does he die? And that in God's purpose in ministry, in Jesus' life, his purpose is to go to a cross, to die there for the sins of the entire world, so that we might receive forgiveness and abundant life, and that reconciliation and healing can be shed abroad. Everybody in this story follows the same pattern. Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, although he has a hiccup along the way. The Magi even follow this pattern. We all have a call to be obedient to the Lord. And so what happens for us in our lives is sometimes we end up finding ourselves moving through the routines of our religious life, and we often can easily forget that maybe God has an extraordinary call for every one of us. We move through the maintenance of our spiritual life, sometimes not logging how God is moving and working in a way that we could never think or imagine. The founder of our movement was a man named John Wesley, and he had a keen awareness that this was an issue in people's spiritual life. And so he decided that he would build a a service of covenant renewal by which the people of God every year would recommit themselves to discernment, surrender, acceptance, and obedience every year. The first time Wesley used this service is in 1753. The service that you have it today inside your bulletin dates from 1775. It's based on Richard Aline's service from 1663. This is the service of covenant renewal we're going to share today as our response to the kind of obedience that Joseph had and that hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus have had before us. This is important work for us to do. Friends, as First Free Methodist Church, our capacity to embody these words that we're going to read and share together will determine the destiny of our church. Our capacity to embody these words will determine whether there is a church here in 10 years or not. And so it's on us, friends. It's on me. It's on you to believe that God is calling this church to be extraordinary. And so I want us to enter into this time sober, clear-eyed, 
because our willingness to do what these words we're about to say mean means everything. I'm going to invite Pastor Camille to come and we're going to lead you together in this service you see in the bulletin and the responses are on the screen. Commit yourselves to Christ as His servants. Give yourselves to Him so that you may belong to Him. Christ has many services to be done. Some are more easy and honorable. Others are more difficult and disgraceful. Some are suitable to our inclinations and interests, and others are contrary to both. In some we may please Christ and please ourselves, but then there are other works where we cannot please Christ except by denying ourselves. It is necessary, therefore, that we consider what it means to be a servant of Christ. Let us therefore go to Christ and pray. Let me be your servant under your command. I will no longer be my own. I will give up myself to your will in all things. Lord, Lord, make make me me what what you will. will. I put put myself fully into your hands. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and with a willing heart Give it all to your pleasure and disposal. Christ will be the Savior of none but his servants. He is the source of all salvation to those who obey. Christ will have no servants except by consent. Christ will not accept anything except full consent to all that he requires. Christ will be all in all or he will be nothing. Confirm this by a holy covenant. To make this covenant a reality in your life, listen to these admonitions. First, set apart some time more than once to be spent alone before the Lord in seeking earnestly God's special assistance and gracious acceptance of you, in carefully thinking through all the conditions of the covenant, in searching your hearts whether you have already freely given your life to Christ. Consider what your sins are. Consider the laws of Christ, how holy, strict, and spiritual they are, and whether you, after having carefully considered them, are willing to choose them at all. Be sure you are clear in these matters. See that you do not lie to God. Second, be serious and in a spirit of holy awe and reverence. Third, claim God's covenant. Rely upon God's promise of giving grace and strength so that you can keep your promise. Trust not your own strength and power. Fourth, resolve to be faithful. You've given to the Lord your hearts. You've opened your mouths to the Lord, and you've dedicated yourself to God. With God's power, never go back. And last, be then prepared to renew your covenant with the Lord. Fall down on your knees. Lift your hands toward heaven. Open your hearts to the Lord as we pray. O righteous God, For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, see me as I fall down before you. Forgive my unfaithfulness in not having done your will. For you have promised mercy to me, 
If I turn to you with my whole heart. God requires that you shall put away all your idols. I I hear from from the the bottom bottom of my heart, heart, renounce them them all. Covenanting with you that no known sin shall be allowed in my life. Against your will, I have turned my love toward the world. In your power, I will watch all temptations that will lead me away from you. For my own righteousness is riddled with sin, unable to stand before you. Through Christ, God is offered to be your God again. If you would let him before, before all, all heaven, heaven and, and earth, I here acknowledge you as my Lord and God. I take you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for my portion and vow to give up myself, body and soul, as your servant to serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of my life. God has given the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way and means of coming to God. Jesus, I do here on bended knees accept Christ as the only new and living way and sincerely join myself in a covenant with him. O blessed Jesus, I come to you hungry, sinful, miserable, blind, and naked, unworthy even to wash the feet of your servants. I do here, with all my power, accept you as my Lord and head. I renounce my own worthiness and vow that you are the Lord of my righteousness. I renounce my own wisdom and take you for my only guide. I renounce my own will and take your will as my law. Christ has told you that you must suffer with him. I do here covenant with you, O Christ, to take my lot with you as it may fall. Through your grace, I promise that neither life nor death shall part me from you. God has given holy laws as the rule of your life. I do here willingly put my neck under your yoke to carry your burden. All your laws are holy, just, and good. I therefore take them as the rule for my words, thoughts, and actions, promising that I will strive to order my whole life according to your direction and not allow myself to neglect anything I know to be my duty. The Almighty God searches and knows your heart. O God, you know that I make this covenant with you today without guile or reservation. If any falsehood should be in it, guide me and help me to set it aright. And now glory be to you, O God the Father, whom I from this day forward shall look upon as my God and Father. Glory be to you, O God the Son, who have loved me and washed me from my sins in your own blood, and now is my Savior and Redeemer. Glory be to you, O God, the Holy Spirit, who by your almighty power have turned my heart from sin to God. O mighty God, the Lord omnipotent, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have now become my covenant friend, and I, through your infinite grace, have become your covenant servant. So be it, and let the covenant I have made on earth be ratified in heaven. Amen. You are advised to make this covenant not only in your heart, but in word. Not only in word, but in writing. Therefore, with all reverence, lay the service before the Lord as your act and deed. When you have done this, sign it. Then keep it as a reminder of the holy agreement between God and you, that you may remember it during doubts and temptations. We printed enough of these for everyone. And so if you need another copy, we have them available in the foyer to take with you and to keep um, Mr. Wesley's exhortation to sign it and keep it throughout 2024 as a reminder of the covenant that you have made with the Lord this day. God has called us for this kind of obedience built on God's grace and infinite love for us. May it be so now and always in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Will you join with me now in Holy Communion as we celebrate together the the means that God gives us to be sustained in the commitment that we have just made. May the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. You came to us in the person of Jesus who saves us from our sins and brings us into your presence. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son Jesus Christ. His birth into the world caused fear amongst the powers and principalities who slaughtered many innocent children in an effort to stop him. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread, and after he had returned thanks to you, he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, the Lord Jesus took the cup, and after he returned thanks to you, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at the heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and ever, and unto ages of ages.
Amen. Now we are bold to pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who... <laughs> lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, we're all human. I read what's on the paper. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Lord, we're thankful for your mercy that covers even our smallest mistakes. And we give you thanks that when we break this bread, we remember that Jesus is broken for us at the right time, for the right reason, the redemption of all. And we give thanks over the cup. We give thanks and praise to you, God, for sending Jesus into our midst, who we celebrate as an infant, who will be glorified in his cross and resurrection. For in this table, this is the story of Jesus, for his coming into our midst and his coming again. Thanks be to God. Music